Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, hanging out with Junie Lowry, of course, the Star Trek casting director extraordinaire that we should all appreciate right now. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the evolution of Star Trek ensembles. Yeah, Cam, I, I, I should <laughs> say this. I'm not actually hanging out with Junie Lowry. That would be a, a real <laughs> great interview for us to do. But um, we want to dive in and t- how... You know, the cast ensembles, the main cast, have really evolved, you know, over the 55-plus years of Star Trek, where if we just jump into it, let's start with the original series, in which it's a two-hander. It is Shatner and Nimoy as Kirk and Spock, and this is a completely different era of Star Trek, or I should say just television in general, in which, you know, you can have a show, uh, unless you're named the X-Files, like, there really aren't any shows anymore in which you just have two people in the main cast. And they were really kind of telegraphing that this is going to be a show all about Kirk and Spock. Because, look, DeForest Kelly, he wasn't even added to the opening credits until a mock time in, in season two. And it, it's interesting to me, like, this is just not something that we'd ever see in modern Star Trek, where it's only two people in the opening credits. So this really signals, you know, despite the fact that uh, we've got, like, a, a very illustrious, you know, supporting cast, they're not in the main credits, which is something we'll see evolving and changing as we go further into our discussion tonight. Yeah, and I think the thing that's really interesting about Star Trek was, out of the gate, you know, Kirk is established, Spock is established, and the dynamic between the two has enough weight to it that it's actually compelling just to see those two. And you can see that, like, when they get to, like, season two onwards, they realize what they have with DeForest Kelly and say, okay, we now have kind of this triumvirate. We have the logic of Spock, the emotion of Bones, and how this sort of is you know, kind of the, the fulcrum points that Kirk swings between. That is just dramatically really interesting. And a lot of shows, I think, wouldn't have the security to do that. Like, they would feel like, oh, three characters, or in the case of the first season, two characters. That's too little. We are we don't feel like we have enough we could write for them. But you really see that the show manages to mine material for them again and again and again and just come at that dynamic in different ways. How soon do you think it was before they realized, you know, uh, they had something in DeForest Kelly? You know, I think his agent obviously did some uh, between seasons negotiating and got him into the main credits there. But I, I think it was pretty quickly that producers realized that this guy, despite him not being in the, the, the main titles that first season, like they kind of struck gold there, too. Yeah, I would think it's a scene like I think of the Corbomite maneuver. I believe that's the episode where um, Kirk has this like sit down and talk with McCoy in the medical bay for quite a while. And it's a a conversation that they were trying to pay homage to at the start of Star Trek Beyond, where they were talking about Kirk's birthday and the death of his father. That, I remember them saying, was an homage to that conversation on the show. And I would guess it's when they realize they have this sort of gravitas going on in these conversations, that is going to contribute to why they would want to give him more. But also... Once I think they started having him banter back and forth with Spock, that is where you go, okay, 
first off, we know that Spock is like a lightning rod for fandom. Like that became a massive breakout character and that character is going to get all this, or Nimoy of course as well, is going to get all this fan mail rolling in. He's very much going to be front and center in all the marketing, all the magazines, all that sort of stuff. So what better than to have another character who's, you know, one of his primary roles on the show is to bounce off of Spock. I also got to ask you this, Cam. You know, th this wasn't the original cast. The it was going to be, you know, <laughs> Jeffrey Hunter, Leonard Nimoy, yeah. uh, Majel Barrett, you know, as number one here. Flash forward, what, like 56, 57 years? And we'll finally get uh, those three people returning as kind of the main characters in Strange New Worlds. But it is just fascinating to see that they were willing. It took them a full year to get another pilot going, but they were willing to kind of uh, shake up maybe what was not necessarily working in terms of chemistry or in terms of a kind of a lead and just go with a whole new direction. And look, I, I, I don't want to disparage Jeffrey Hunter. I don't think I'm doing so because there is a legacy of Pike here, but you look at Hunter's performance in the cage and you look at just this charisma that you get from Shatner when we first meet him, I guess technically in the man trap, but really it's just all the subsequent appearances that we have in uh, season one. Well, when you look at the cage, because we're talking about like the dynamics of that main cast, uh, you know, your main players of, you know, Kirk, Spock and McCoy. When you look at the cage, what is the dynamic of that show? It is, I guess, <laughs> I think there's more of a dynamic between number one and Pike than there is between Pike and Spock. Bach, if like I recall correctly, it's been a couple years since I saw that episode. But is that your takeaway too? Yeah, like I would say number one is uh, number two on the call sheet, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that she's, you know, kind of having that somewhat equal footing as like a Spock Kirk relationship. It feels more like Pike is very much your lead character on what that show is at least pitching off its pilot. Do you think it would, okay, so if we see that what we get in the original series, it's a, a Kirk-Spock two-hander, at least for season one, or, you know, at least on paper, what would it have just been like a Jeffrey Hunter-driven kind of main character sort of series if you had some sort of like, I don't know, like alt-dimension look-see or something like that? Would that have been kind of the, the focus of the series, if that was your guess? That... It's my guess that he would have been the focal point of the show off the bat. I do wonder, like, if that series goes forward with that cast, do some of the same writers cross over who wound up working on the Kirk version of the original series? Because if so, suddenly you have, like, you know, a DC Fontana has ideas for what she'd like to do with Spock. And we know that a lot of the Spock concepts were things that Roddenberry as well was interested in tackling with the character. So it's like maybe they do flesh some of those characters out and they do get more screen time and maybe number one has a much more dynamic character in the on ensuing episodes so that once you get past that kind of freshman hump they actually have a core cast that maybe operates in the way we're going to see on strange new worlds it's so yeah. hard to say right it is but look if we look at the supporting cast you know they, they weren't in the main credits they were at the you know, kind of the, uh, the the closing credits there what we would i guess consider to be the Detmers, the Awashikans, the, the Reese and Bryces of this era. But I would say that they, they popped, you know, we're talking about characters like Scotty or Uhura 
or uh, Chekhov or, you know, one uh, George Takei, uh, a.k.a. Sulu. Like, they kind of popped, I think, on screen more than the uh, the bridge crew of Discovery. Uh, but the thing is, other than maybe Scotty or Chekhov, there weren't really any episodes dedicated to the other characters. They weren't really that fleshed out. It was really more about that triumvirate, even if we didn't get a ton of you know, like Dr. McCoy episodes, he was still front and center and giving kind of his, like his character was integral to almost all the episodes from seasons one through three. Yeah, like I would say Scotty is fourth place in that like there's a lot of episodes where there's kind of a little bit of a B story of what's going on back at the ship and Scotty's in command. Um, You also have, as you said, like he has a couple episodes of his own, like, you know, fan favorites like Wolf in the Fold and um, (laughs) (laughs) the Lights of Zetar. More Um, like Cam favorites. (laughs) So you've got like those. He's act. They're actually like at certain points interested in writing episodes for him. Uhura I would put next because um, she doesn't have real episodes built around her, but she does have strong roles within episodes you know like Plato's stepchildren for example and also just like really memorable moments whether it's you know singing in the um you know the hangout room or moments where she's fixing something and Spock is encouraging her like they really do kind of stop the show to give her character moments which they would not do in the movies that's for sure and I would say like Sulu and Chekhov are kind of behind them where like Sulu's a little compromised because of the fact George Takei was off shooting the Green Berets in season two. So he kind of disappears from the show for a while. And when I think of like iconic Sulu moments, most of them come from the movies. When you ask people, I feel like with Sulu, what's the most iconic moment on the show? They go, oh, of course, the fencing, you know, you know, in the scene, you know, the scene where he's like hallucinating on the ship in the naked time. And I go, yep. What's number two? And then what? Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, and it's like, there's good stuff in like... <laughs> and that's like, what, episode seven? Yeah, there's good stuff in the episode Shore Leave. You know, there's moments throughout, but you don't have as many iconic moments. Chekhov, he at least gets major roles in episodes like um, the Space Hippies episode, you know, things like that. If Janice Rand's character had not departed from the series... Do you think she would have been number four? Like, she would have kind of usurped... You know, Scotty from that particular, like, ranking there? I would have to imagine that was the, the like, the goal when they created that character and when they launched the show. But it's also very clear early on they didn't really know what to do with her. So I would think she probably was intended to fill a little more of that McCoy slot even up front of being maybe the third place person. But then I, I just think within, like, two, three episodes they were like, this, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Well, look, I... I... I'll say this though, uh, you know, I, I wonder what they'll do with the Nurse Chapel and Spock dynamic going into Strange New Worlds. I think there's a lot of potential for a lot of fun there with that character, those character dynamics. Yeah, like TOS doesn't get a lot of love for its ability to give, you know, the entire cast something to do. The other shows are much better at that, but little relationships like that, like I think Nurse Chapel is a character that people often don't really think of because she's not you know a major role in the movies i think the movies have a huge impact on how we look at that original cast whereas when you actually watch the show i'd say chapel's a larger role probably than sulu is uh, yeah pretty close she's a more developed character for sure yeah definitely and has a lot more scenes once again i think if you circle around the orbit of fan favorite spock you're gonna get more screen time and i think that really benefited her yeah 
Well, why don't we jump over to Next Generation, in which, you know, uh, all the main characters are in the main credits. You know, that that's a, the, the biggest difference between uh, that and uh, the original series. But they do kind of settle into that triumvirate, I, I'd say, fairly quickly. They, they do realize that they have something with data. And you look at the credits, and, and this is something we really haven't seen before in Star Trek or, or have seen since, but it says, starring Patrick Stewart, starring Jonathan Frakes, and then you get to also starring, and then you get the rest <laughs> of the cast from there. And I know in retrospect, it seems as if, you know, Data was just as significant as Picard or Riker. But I, I look, if you just tallied all the lines of dialogue, I would say that Frakes dominates Spiner, you know. But I, I would say that the Data episodes stick into people's minds that much more than maybe the uh, Riker episodes do. So it is kind of very interesting dynamic. But they settled into that fairly quickly. I, I, I'd say by would you, midway through... Season three, those were the three characters that it is very obvious that's who the writers liked writing for the most. It seems that way, yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about the data episodes, you know, tend to grab people more, which is why he's regarded higher. Do you think he has more great episodes in Riker? Do you think, like, quality wise, there's that much of a difference? Or do you think it's just, like, kind of the flashiness of data? I would say if you're talking about like classic episodes of Star Trek, you've got stuff like in theory, you've got, you know, a measure of a man, you've got brothers, you've got Masks. a lot of, <laughs> thank you, I was just about to say that. Whereas the... Riker's best episode, I would say, is Best of Both Worlds Part 1. Uh, best of Both Worlds Part 2 is not a Riker episode, that's more of an ensemble, let's bang, bang, bang you know, here are the plot points, figure out how to get out of this mess that we created in this very character-driven first-parter. Um, beyond, you know, w you know, best of both worlds, w what is uh, kind of the most notable Riker episode in your mind, Cam? Like, when I think of ones people screen cap a lot or online, I feel like Frame of Mind gets a lot of screen caps. Sure. That's a um... fine episode, but it's not like, is that... Is that up there with any of the top data episodes? And I would... Like, no. My answer is no. Yeah, because there's also the offspring for data as well, which is a huge yeah. fan yeah. favorite. Um, I'm trying to think, is there another like really powerful Riker episode? Because Frame of Mind is not the powerful episode. Like Riker has a lot of fun episodes, a lot of really, really good episodes. I don't think he has like a track record of bad ones. I'm just trying to think of like the all-timer iconic ones. Pegasus. I think that's up there. I yeah. think that's a top three i'd say that's a top three Riker episode up there with uh best of both worlds part one that's a good call yeah that's probably yeah it's probably those two right yeah yeah but the thing is i don't think that matters so much you just frakes is front and center in pretty much every episode i believe he and patrick stewart were the only performers to appear in every single episode of star trek the next Gener generation and I, I think, like, it's, you know, like, obviously Patrick Stewart has the most screen time, but I don't think it comes close after that. Like, I don't think Data comes close to uh, Riker when it comes to screen time. It's just that, you know, Data has more of the flashier moments and the most memorable sort of episodes after Picard. Yeah, that's definitely true. And what I appreciate about TNG is that um, while I wouldn't say that every cast member is treated equally in terms of episodes... You could look at that, even the first season, it's very clear Patrick Stewart is a powerhouse. Like, you could easily have just 
built every episode around him, and it probably would have been pretty good. You know, you would have had a pretty good run of a show because just what he can bring to that character is phenomenal. And the fact that they were still going, okay, you know what? We want to focus on other characters because that's not something I don't think they would have done that in the 60s. I know. I know. Um, Look, there's some other interesting little tidbits with regards to uh, the, the evolution of ensembles here in TNG. And that, you know, Worf, fan favorite Worf, he, he wasn't originally part of the main cast. He was just more of kind no. of a background player. And they elevated him into the main cast before the uh, the show premiered. And then we also have the whole Yar stuff. You know, Denise Crosby leaves the series. She's just like, I, I, I'd rather pursue my acting career doing stuff beyond shouting, aye, aye, Captain, behind a console you know i i totally understand that and then we also found out from certus where, where the producers wanted to axe yet another character between seasons one and two and certus says it was going to be her absolutely definitively you know you can't get rid of the ship's doctor but then you know it's probably easier to get rid of maybe the ship's therapist who's not necessarily going on away missions every single episode but Gates McFadden leaves, and that essentially saves Sirtis's job. You know, the the problem is like they never the writers never quite knew what to do with Sirtis in like kind of a utilitarian role, but she endures as a fan favorite, and it's it just her presence there um, really worked well. But Cam, what do you think of this evolution of an ensemble where you have Diane Mulder come in as Dr. Catherine Pulaski? And she's not in the main cast, but she's kind of meant to be because every single time she's in an episode of season two of Next Gen, you know, it it is a a very prominent role. Yeah. And another thing about season one as well, that's also kind of topsy-turvy is also they don't know what to to do with Jordy yet because he's like on the bridge and kind of a weird character. So that's also notable. But like the introduction of Pulaski is interesting because when you watch the show now, and the thing is I watched... TNG, you know, went through episode by episode after I'd seen the movies, after I kind of know what TNG is. I wonder if I were to watch this show at the time of when it's airing, if I would have been that angry about um, Crusher leaving, or if I would have just somewhat, you know, quickly accepted Pulaski, because I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the character. I think the problem is they made her a little too close to trying to replicate past successes with Bones, and also you you know and i believe we've talked about this in the past just with having her spar against data it doesn't work because the thing about spock was he could give back really well against um you know mccoy whereas data is sort of more this childlike character so it, it it's not a good look it, it feels like punching down yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, look, should there be a Justice for Pulaski campaign out there? Uh, many people have reevaluated Jellico over the years. I, I think people appreciate him <laughs> a little bit more. But I, I just, I, I'm on the Facebook groups, and look, it, it, it's been 30 plus years, and there's still just these incredibly rude, disparaging comments made about her. Uh, just stuff that doesn't even have to do with the show, and it just kind of makes me like, I don't know. Uh, feel disgusted oftentimes when i'm on social media which let's be honest if if it's social media that that's not too hard to do no and i suspect if pulaski had been there right from episode one and you had her have some of those decent dialogue scenes with picard where they have this you know relationship in the past and it gives you know picard someone to talk to i think we would have a very different interpretation of pulaski versus this replacement status she has 
Okay, so a few seasons later, season four, uh, oh, well, actually, season three, this is very strange in, in which we have Dr. Crusher return to the show, which, um, okay, I, I, I love it. But then uh, by season four, Wesley departs the series. And then kind of the story goes that uh, Rick Berman, the executive producer, is just, at least according to Will Wheaton, was just being a total jerk. Like, just wouldn't let him take a couple weeks off. Uh, to go film a movie, and then by then, Will Wheaton was being told by Berman that, oh, don't worry, like, you're going to be integral to season four, we need you, we can't let this happen. Oh, I'm sorry, I think he was actually talking in reference to uh, the end of season three, and then when it didn't come to fruition, you know, that uh, Wesley was made this super prominent character by the end of season three, Will Wheaton was just like, you know what, what am I doing here? Like, I can pursue kind of my acting career elsewhere. And he kind of had the similar sort of Tasha Yar experience. The reason I bring this up, though, is just like Yar and, and as we see with Wesley, they don't really replace those two characters with kind of analogs to come in. It's just like the, the main cast goes from nine to seven by the time that we settle in from you know halfway through or i should say like one third of the way through season four onwards and those seven actors are considered the core cast members you know if you go to a convention and you're being told that you can get a uh, photograph with the entire cast it's seven actors it's not nine yeah um no that's very true and i think with tng it was a little bit of Obviously, there was some attrition just for reasons that are either just professionally unpleasant. You know, I don't think Denise Crosby was happy at all there and they weren't treating the character well. But um, it's ultimately like what they were left with were all very strong and could stand on their own. So you kind of had a perfectly refined seven member cast that you could tell endless stories with as opposed to feeling like you had to keep adding people to try to improve something. Well, it's interesting because, okay, you, you we're talking about the seven cast members, but you also have Guinan and O'Brien, who are these kinds of, of semi-regulars, you know, and they, they appear in like, I don't know, like half the episodes. It's kind of a truly different feel. Like, they're not the equivalent of Lieutenant Leslie from the original series, who wasn't part of the core cast, but he was more of a recurring character. And they also weren't like Ensign Gates, you know, on the bridge of the Enterprise-D, who is obviously the most prolific Helms person that we saw in Next Generation. So it's it's kind of interesting like how they really did uh, develop Guinan and to a lesser degree O'Brien, but they, they they were treated as kind of like stalwarts of the series, even if they were never destined to be in the main cast. I don't think there's anybody assuming that they'd one day kind of get bumped to the main cast, even though you do see a lot of Whoopi Goldberg uh, uh, photos in a lot of the cast photos, uh, the publicity photos that were, you know, are still out there for, I think, at least season five. I think that's the one that I'm thinking of. That's just smart marketing. <laughs> true, true. Oscar winning Whippy Goldberg in the publicity shots. Yeah, I wonder how much of that was just having the confidence of knowing those seven, you know, leads can carry your show. So suddenly you're like, okay, we know that we can build the stories around them that are really going to work. Now we can kind of peek outside of that and introduce characters, you know, have characters like Guinan and obviously Whoopi Goldberg is such a get for them that of course they're going to give her material, but more so like a O'Brien character, you can go, okay, we can actually look in that sort of direction. Let's flesh this character out a bit or also like Barkley as well. Um, I think because you just had that strong core, you could actually bring other people in knowing that, you know, essentially the, the core of what your show is is very safe. You know, it, you bring that up, and I, I want to bring up Ensign Rowe. You know, like, similar to mm, Barkley, she, yeah. she's like, she's more of kind of a, a guest star 
you know like she she's not in as many episodes as people like might think i think i think she's in fewer than 10 episodes maybe closer to six or seven over the course of seasons five six and seven you know but the the reason i bring her up though is because they were setting her up to be kind of the co-lead of deep space nine like that's what they originally wanted when they were developing that series um it's just interesting to see how prominent she was in every single episode that she appeared in as just a, a simple guest star. Yeah, and it's a case of a character who I think is fantastic, and I would have happily seen her. I don't know if I want her on DS9. I really like Kira, but know, you know, nonetheless, know. Yeah. Michelle Forbes is incredible. But it's an interesting case where like those episodes are fantastic. I love the character. But, like, had the character never come around, the show probably would have still been okay because you just had that core cast who were so strong. So it's because they're there, you can introduce a, a you know, Ensign Rowe character and you can just raise the show to that next level. I think that's why, you know, TNG has so many things working for it in terms of its popularity. But it's like, it was elements like this, additions like this, characters that really could pop that made it much more of a mainstream favorite than shows like, well, the ones that would come after, like DS9 or Voyager. Okay, so I think that TNG really did flesh out its cast, its main cast, more so than the original series. But I'm going to make the argument that Deep Space Nine is Star Trek's only true ensemble series, you know, in which it wasn't just the Captain Picard show. It wasn't, you know, like, like Cisco is obviously the lead of the series but i think he definitely takes more of a back seat than any of the other leads that we have seen in star trek before and after well the key to i think underlining that is that when you look at ds9 yeah as you said cisco's your lead kira's probably your number two but if you go down the list everyone has a lot of material and a lot of episodes built around their characters whereas when you look at tng how many episodes does Deanna really have? How many does Crusher really have? Um, you know, it's just like much more fair play on DS9. It's a show that obviously every character really represented something very different on the show. Like TNG, it's kind of a group of people who are all kind of thinking the same and working towards a common goal. Whereas with DS9, everyone's coming from a different place. The show is much more conflict driven. And so you need to spend time with each of these characters kind of equally to understand the larger picture of the diversity of what this cast represents on the show. Oh, 100%. I, I just, I'm still amazed that they give Jake at least, you know, one episode every season. Uh, you know, your, mm -hmm. your mileage will vary. But like there's stuff like, you know, um, Treachery, Faith in the Great River, which is kind of a Odo, uh, an Odo and Weiyun kind of road trip. But in the kind of the B story, it's a very prominent B story about Jake Nog, and that, and that calls back to uh, In the Cards as well, whereas you also have things like The Visitor. You know, the, the, Jake is obviously, like, uh, bottom of the list when it comes to the most prominent characters there, but they're making an effort to give him, like, the, the best material that they can, and I'm talking about The Muse. That is my all-time favorite <laughs> Would you say that more DS9 episodes are driven by twosomes than TNG? Or I feel like when I think about it, a lot of the TNG stories um, are driven by our lead character for the episode and an encounter with love interest or alien or some sort of phenomena or whatever versus DS9 where a lot of the episodes are driven by two characters being together. Yeah, look, it's not as if we had a lot of um, Geordi and Crusher take off on a shuttlecraft to you know, <laughs> help 
a, a planet in despair sort of episodes, you know, whereas you could totally do that with O'Brien and, and Julian or you no know, think about like, uh, you know, Dr. Bashir and Jake, they get one of those episodes as well. You know, like I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I remember Ron Moore talking about uh, Battlestar Galactica and he was just saying, you know, like just one of the funny, funnest things as a writer to do is just pair up characters that you wouldn't usually expect, put them in interesting situations. And I forget who is saying it. Uh, I think it was in the Deep Space Nine Companion, but one of the writers was saying like, you know what? You know, we, we get to the, an episode like Empok Nor, and we're pairing up, you know, O'Brien with Garrick at this point. And, and like, they, they really hmm. did want to like play around as much as they could within the universe and give them, you know, character centric episodes, which I, I think is just part of the genius that, that made Deep Space Nine so easy to invest in from a character standpoint. What was the big missed opportunity for a Vedic Burial team up episode? I think. I think it's Brile and Cork uh, trying to acquire an orb. I think that could have been oh a fun road God. trip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that's like a three-parter, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's like uh, the, the season two three-parter that kicked off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, so uh, let me bring up this point. Uh, Worf returns in season four. Yeah. It is the first time since, I guess, Dr. Crusher. Uh, but, you know, it, it's the first time that a character returns to the series. But in this case, it's going from one series to the other. And, and I, I get it. You know, O'Brien was originally in TNG, but he wasn't a main character. One could make, uh, I think, a perfectly valid argument that uh, Deep Space Nine is an O'Brien spinoff, you know. But it, it is interesting in, like, how kind of Worf marks this kind of new era where they're willing to... Engage in a little bit more fan service than they were before by bringing back such a fan favorite and introducing him to this new ensemble. And I, I think War, Worf just works so much better on Deep Space Nine than he ever did in TNG. Worf is really interesting because I think with a different show, the addition with of Worf is pushing someone out. And we'll talk about someone getting pushed out when we get to the next show. And... That would have been the case on not just Star Trek, so many shows. You add Worf, someone's going. Or someone's getting a lot less screen time. But it doesn't feel like that. No. And I think that's one of the genius elements of DS9 is they could add someone and that person almost instantly could feel like a member of that core ensemble. But the show didn't feel lopsided. It didn't feel like they had to give Worf, you know, multiple episodes a season to kind of get him on equal footing with everyone else. It's just like he instantly blended into the world they'd built with these other actors. Well, it's interesting. I'm going through season four of Deep Space Nine right now. And look, he gets like this uh, feature length episode dedicated to hmm. him with Way of the Warrior. And he kind of falls more into the background, uh, more than you would necessarily remember, uh, at least for the first half of season four. And a lot of it just has to do with, well, you know, we've kind of outlined our plans uh, and our story ideas and now we've got to insert Worf here or there but I, I think it's really by the time we get into you know kind of season five where he, he's kind of fully integrated with the cast and l like you said you don't necessarily have to do five Worf episodes a season but he his character is just so much deeper on Deep Space Nine by getting into his quirks than he ever was on TNG. Now, here's a question. Who had the better return episode, Worf with Way of the Warrior or Crusher with Evolution? I mean, it's a toss-up, Cam. I, like, it's very close. I know. Coin flip. Just very, a, very close. A coin flip. Um, <laughs> we need to touch on Dax's departure here because, look, yeah. um, 
Yar uh, is killed off, and we do see Denise Crosby return, albeit as entirely different character. Uh, Dax is killed off in a, a manner just as upsetting <laughs> as we saw with Yar. And I remember um, during that summer, there's a lot of questions about like what would come next, because it seems so obvious that you could have like the Dax symbiont return with another host. And there were also suggestions going on, you know, like why not bump Garrick up to the main cast? And I think it was Ron Moore on the MSN chat boards who addressed that question. And he just made it clear, like we don't want the series to be Kira and the boys. And I think that's a totally valid concern. But there, there are also... You know, suggestions that maybe Cassidy Yates uh, is bumped up to the main cast. I, I think it's, like, I think the best thing that they could have ever done is what they did, which is introduce Esri, who was not somebody who's ever meant to be joined, and have her be totally satisfied with what her life was going to be, and then have to deal with integrating with the symbionts. And I, I just, it could have gone so poorly, like, Terry Farrell was such a fan favorite, I think a lot of people were maybe a little unfair to Nicole DeBoer as she first started off, but I really totally appreciate how she was doing something different. Well, it's kind of a no-win assignment if you're an actor to come in on yeah. the final season to replace a fan favorite. Like, good luck. But whereas I said, like, Worf, it didn't feel like they had to bend over backwards to just, like, give him a ton of material um, to kind of get him on equal footing. It feels a little more like that with Esri, where... She has a lot of material at the start of season seven, plus a few episodes of her own. Um, but I think it's kind of necessary. I don't think there was a way around that. And the fact that, uh, you know, people show up to see um, Nicole DeBoer at cons and Esri is a popular character to this day shows that it was necessary. Yeah. I, just a little behind the scenes sort of stuff, though. But Terry Farrell had suggested at a convention that we were at that she was pitching the idea that she would continue into season seven in a recurring role like she never wanted her character killed off and this way she could accommodate that uh pretty easy sitcom schedule that she would have had with becker and then pop into deep space nine i think i could be mistaken i think they were on the same lots you know, in, in Hollywood, I, I, don't quote me on that. And in, in all fairness, their contracts, those Deep Space Nine cast members' contracts, they were up after six seasons. It, it was totally within her right to kind of see what other opportunities are going to be out there after she spent, you know, six years on one show. And just from what we hear, it, it all came down very similar to the Will Wheaton thing. It, it was kind of Rick Berman hubris, you know, like he was saying, this must be your one and only priority except i guess i and and i swear this is from what i understand and that colin meany he had it in his contract from the outset of space nine that he would be allowed to go and do different projects you know like film movies in ireland uh, that sort of stuff so i think he was kind of the, the one accommodation that they really made during this Berman era i mean good for colin meany but it does sound a little bit like the um, metallica environment of if you watch the some kind of monster where jason newstead got in a t the bassist uh got in a ton of trouble for doing side projects that's what it feels like with uh star trek of this era under berman it's like no side projects i know i think they would just like accommodate that right now otherwise uh if not then we would have never seen colin meany in uh what <laughs> air, con air that's the one uh or as, yeah. as, as i'm sure he tried pitching it um column air <laughs> It was he was on TNG, I guess, at the time he did uh, his very brief appearance in Die Hard 2 as well. 
Look, the, the guy was a working actor, and uh, he still continues to be. So uh, good on him there. Uh, so, Cam, let, let, let's jump over to Voyager. And you watch an episode like Caretaker, and you would think that they are carrying on that torch. They totally want to be in an ensemble cast like we're seeing in uh, the first one and a half seasons of Deep Space Nine. You marvel at how much screen time that not just Janeway is getting, but Tom, Chakotay, Tuvok, and even Harry. And then... I don't know, Cam. It's like there are a lot of episodes dedicated not necessarily specifically to characters, but to kind of high concept ideas where everyone would get kind of a line of techno babble. But I don't know if it was such a character based series as the other ones tried to be. And I I would say that that changed far and away the most when Michael Piller departed. Uh, midway through season three as well. Um, I, I, even the just early Belana Torres, like she was set up really well to have like interesting dynamics with characters like bouncing off both Chakotay as well as Harry Kim. And it just doesn't feel as if they ever brought that to fruition. That They settled on more of that, you know, but by the time we get to season four, it's kind of a, a triumvirate once again. It's, it's Janeway, the Doctor, and Seven of Nine. I feel I don't know that I feel like um, Voyager was trying to continue on from like DS9 so much as like they wanted to continue on from TNG and skip the growing pains that TNG went through. Like they want their solid core ship cast the way that TNG had from like seasons four onwards. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. But they don't have it. And it's like they just TNG. You could tell that they were very confident in those characters once like the show hit its stride whereas it's like they wanted to skip those growing pains but they didn't have the confidence in those actors or the characters because a lot of the characters were changed and uh some of them were backgrounded as the show continued to evolve so it's like they wanted to kind of start strong and feel like they were solidified but they they really weren't and maybe they should have been a little more flexible off the bat to kind of see how characters would fit in versus trying to push you know, something that wasn't quite baked yet. Like, um, Neelix constantly be being jealous of Tom because he offered a chair to Kess in, like, episode two. <laughs> Just kind of like... Well, like, yeah, like, right off the bat, they set up, you know, Neelix and Kess on the ship, and you're like, okay, like, I guess this could be interesting. But, like, you could tell they didn't know what to do with those characters on a week-by-week basis. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, well, uh, a few minutes ago, you alluded to you know characters being pushed out, and we see by the end of season three, um, is either going to be Kess or Kim that got the boot from the series, and from you know what we understand behind the scenes, you know a lot of hats off to Garrett Wong's agent or publicist for getting him into People Magazine's Sexiest People of the Year. You know, I mean, for me, it was a burden. Like, uh, for me personally, mm. when, when I had to deal with that. But it totally makes sense for these Hollywood folk. And um, I, I'll just point out, like, Cam, how many, like, men of, like, East Asian descent do you think were being featured in People's People Magazine, Sexiest People of the Year in, like, the 1990s? Like, I, I don't think it was a lot. And I think the producers realized, like, what a bad look it's going to be if they, like, dump, you know, one of the few, like, people of color... Uh, that they have going on in Star Trek, who's kind of got this profile going on. Otherwise, I think Kim uh, it was almost guaranteed that he was going to get the boot, especially how much they had been setting up the development of Kess's powers from about halfway through season three onward. Yeah, I mean, just answering your question, I have to imagine there's very few 
Asian men showing up in People magazine, beautiful people of that era. Like, it has to be very few. So yeah, that would have been a terrible decision to cut him. It does bum me out, though, to lose Kess because of what they were building up. There's a lot of characters on Voyager you could have cut, and I'm not saying I want them cut, but it wouldn't have felt like you were um, chopping a story short. Whereas with what they were setting up with Kess, it really does feel like a build-up to nothing. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Not nothing, because she does return in Fury. So, like, we had the nope, return... Nope, nope, never happened. Never <laughs> happened, Tyler. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but the reason I bring it up, though, is, like, we had the return of Dr. Crusher uh, from TNG, but she was put back in the main cast. You know, the, for Cass, it was just, like, kind of a one-time guest spot. And from what I understand from behind the scenes, they wanted her to kind of recur, but... That episode was not good. It, it really, for me, it just left a sour mouth uh, or sour taste in my mouth, uh, just with regards to what they did to that character. And I mean, there's some fun elements in that episode, Fury, in which she she goes back in time and she was going to like feed the crew to the Vidians, which I <laughs> like that. That's a Brian Fuller episode. You could totally tell that's a, a Brian Fuller sort of idea, but it, it's definitely kind of a different era of Star Trek. And it's just like I just. They didn't do right by her, and that, that's what kind of guts me, even to this day, you know, 20-plus years later. Do you think if they'd kept her as a recurring character, it would have been, like, a villain character that is a redeemed by the end or something? I guess so, but is that what I would have wanted to see? You know, let, let's say no. Jedzia was kept as a recurring character in Season 7. You know, I don't think they would have made her kind of a, a villain character. Not Not that you were suggesting that, but it's just like they could have found more interesting things to do with the character than become more of a an antagonist towards a crew that, you know, she would have thought as family just, you know, a season and a half, two seasons earlier. I guess on one hand, I can actually see what's interesting about it, because when you look at the character of Cass early on, it's such like a loving, um, you know, idealistic character that there is something actually interesting about making them a villain, because you would never see that coming. But it's the handling, it's the execution, it's... It's abominable what they did. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I'll point out, though, though, I think, you know, you've got this character who's essentially written out of the main cast by the end of season three. When she comes back for the first two episodes of season four, I think it says special guest star Jennifer Lean. I don't think it's just guest starring Jennifer Lean. Like, that's not really something that we've seen so much in Star Trek. There's no other examples of that that are, are popping to my head at this moment. No, no, nothing really. Um, I mean, I think, well, I think when I always think of special guest star, I think of Michelle Yeoh on Discovery, but um, yeah, not a She's lot She's never else. a main cast member, um, though. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Never um, officially, But, though. you know, yeah. But, yeah, like, with Kess faded out, suddenly you get Seven, who becomes, like, you know how I was saying Worf? <laughs> they didn't feel like they had to uh, give him endless material to justify his role in the show with Seven. Not the case. Like, Seven becomes a huge focal point of Voyager, and I think for the better. It's a case where, like, you can look at it and be like, oh, this is so cynical. You know, they have a very attractive woman in a skin-tight suit, and they're giving her so many episodes. But, like, despite the aesthetics of what they were selling this character as, the storytelling was so often there and made this a hugely compelling character. So it's like, <laughs> it's kind of amazing, really. I, I want to follow up with Seven in, in a few moments. Uh, you know, 
we'll talk about her in just a, a bit with uh, Star Trek Picard because I think it's kind of interesting how, how they follow up with that character then. But if we jump over to Enterprise, you know, um, it's very clear that uh, they've got a triumvirate there from the get-go and uh, they're not changing anything. You know, like they, they gave Hoshi a little bit to do in the first part of season one and they kind of dropped that off. Mayweather... I mean, Ken, that was just kind of embarrassing how they just did not care about that character at all throughout the course of the series. Uh, Phlox has a ton to do in season three, but by the time we get to season four, I think he even has less to do than he did in seasons one and two, which is unfortunate. Like, the Enterprise was all over the place, but I think they succeeded in establishing a very, very firm triumvirate between Archer, Trip, and T'Pol. The triumvirate's very clear up front, but what would you say was the power rankings of that cast going off of, like, you know, say, like, the first three or four episodes? Like, do you think it is the way it shakes out where, because I think when you get to the end, it's very clearly, like, a Phlox, Reed, um, and then Hoshi followed by Mayweather power ranking at the end. But would you say that off the top, like, the first three, four episodes? You you might disagree with me. I think they were kind of setting up... Uh you know, Reed to be more prominent than Hoshi. And I only say setting it, setting her up because like Hoshi got her own dedicated episode within, I think like episode two or three, which was uh fight or flight. But I, I think Reed was going to be getting more screen time than Hoshi based on those first couple episodes. And honestly, he eventually did like, um, but it was more of that utilitarian character versus that kind of real fleshed out, human being sort of developed character yeah he definitely has a lot of screen time i feel like though with hoshi it feels like they're building up a character in the pilot whereas it doesn't feel like that with reed with hoshi it's this person that's never been to space and what this journey is going to mean to her like in a different show this could be like the lead but um it feels like yeah as the series goes that's all lost with hoshi but i do think in those first three episodes or so you could be mistaken for thinking Hoshi's going to be an integral part of this show. It, it just would have made so much sense because, like, they're going out to parts of space that humans have never been before, and she's going to be the one kind of deciphering how to how to contact and communicate with these new aliens. And then, I don't know, they figured out the algorithm for the Universal Translator pretty quickly, and then she kind of faded away. It's a little bit of the um, the um, Neelix and Kess problem, where it's like. <laughs> Okay, we know what this character is. She's going to be like the early version of Ahura, if you will. And then they actually launch the ship and they're like, that's not going to work week to week. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. So I, one other person I want to bring up here, though, is Shran. Uh, he, like, we, we've heard from conventions and from uh, executive producer uh, Manny Cotto, the, the showrunner for season four. And he said, like, if we got a season five, we would have bumped up Shran to the main cast and i i think that's cool and like you have a recurring character and i don't think we've seen this before in star trek uh, i'm pretty certain we haven't uh, up until this point where you have a recurring character who is bumped up to the main cast um it never happened of course but i i think it's just kind of like a testament to what a charismatic kind of character that's one jeffrey combs had developed where you, you started uh i think it was the episode was it shadows of pajem or no, Shadows Pajem was his follow-up episode. What was the one where it's like kind of the uh, uh, Archer gets his butt kicked? Um, the Andorian incident. 
the Andorian incident, that very obvious episode title I should have remembered right there. He, <laughs> that, that to me was not a very good episode, but like he just develops this character that uh, would have been integral to uh, the series. And I don't know, I, I, I just, I, I long for this alt reality in which we would have gotten a season five of Enterprise in which Shran would have been a main character. Well, you just look at like Enterprise ratings at a certain point, like they were very poor. And I would imagine like, Nowadays, though, they would have been a powerhouse on television. Like, that's kind of like, I'm being honest, like 100%. It's true. Like, dozens are watching Star Trek Discovery versus, like, what was watching <laughs> Enterprise. I mean, my God. But, um, yeah, it's like, you know, the, the show was deemed, like, somewhat of a failure. But it's like, Shran was generating what little fan excitement there probably was. So they're like, okay, like, give this character more to do. I'm honestly surprised they didn't bump him up sooner, like maybe season four, for example. Yeah, you know, I and honestly, I wonder if they were still adjusting to some of the budget issues. Like, the budget was cut in season four quite significantly. They stopped, and I forget if it's season three or season four, but they stopped shooting the show on film and went digital, which was very new at the time. And, um... I would say that the production values still hold up, but they were under further constraints and like adding one more main cast member. I don't know how confident they would have felt staying within the budget going into kind of this new budgetary situation, whereas I'm sure they would have felt more confident they could have figured it out going into season five. It feels like a character. They didn't know what they necessarily had when they wrote the Andorian incident, but if they were able to do it over again, you'd think that Shran probably would have been a featured character right off the bat, like real early and carried on like doing more. I mean, if not a main cast member, someone who is like a Garrick, for example, or something who's like a very strong presence through each season. I'm still kind of bummed out that the only time we've heard from Jeffrey Combs in this new era of Star Trek is when he played the voice of a computer on, on Star Trek Lower Decks. I just think that there's so much opportunity for him to keep kind of carrying that torch that he's had, you know, across so many, like, he, he was in Voyager as that uh, Sunkatsi kind of uh, game master. He was in Deep Space Nine. He was in Enterprise. It would be great for him to pop up in a, a different role on, on Discovery or Picard or, or Strange New Worlds. I'm, I'm just... I'll I'll totally take that very small lower decks appearance, uh, that one episode appearance, but I, it, it just seems as if they're kind of missing their opportunity for this uh, go-to character actor. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed that they get him on a good Star Trek show, okay. <laughs> one that's not <laughs> collapsing in a fiery pit. Okay. But um, that would be nice. So, Strange New Worlds, sign Jeffrey Combs up. There, there you go. But. There you go. Um, <laughs> Now, I wanted, we haven't touched on it really. We kind of, you know, skirted around it. But, like, how do you examine the triumvirate of Enterprise versus the original triumvirate on the original series? Like, which one's better, Cam? <laughs> we know which one's better. Okay. But okay. does it, like. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, do, I'll, you, I'll, do you look at it as a success? Is it a success? I guess is the best way to, you know, ask that. Short answer yes, it is. But out of the gate, no, it was not. Out of the gate, the TOS triumvirate was a success it just it took a while for the enterprise one to really gel at least from my perspective and i go back and i I think it was maybe around season three in which you know maybe even you know i I think it was when they stopped making to paul it's come off as such a like uh, i'm just 
using this word it's out there but coming off as like a shrew you know and it's just kind of like um as soon as they did that and, and as soon as they stopped making archer and uh trip kind of part of their, their own little old boys club as well i i, I think it it, it took some more figuring out on the part of the writers than it did if you go back to that original triumv uh, triumvirate in the original series. I think one of the best things that happened to that show was when they started writing moments of sort of like a warm respect between T'Pol and Archer. And suddenly like that became the emotional core for the series in a lot of ways. And I think the show just gets a lot better from that point forward where it's not this combative sort of tone that they had early on. Because it just feels kind of unpleasant early on. Because as you said, it very much turns into Trip and Archer against T'Pol. It's not like Trip is bouncing back and forth. It's like he's always on the side <laughs> of Archer against T'Pol. Yeah. And I think once they settled that, the show got a lot better. I just think about that moment in the finale. Uh, string, uh, these are the voyages. And you have Archer and T'Pol hug and embrace after knowing each other for a full decade then. And that moment feels earned. It's it's not a great finale, but that is my favorite moment from the finale. And it it does tug on my heartstrings right there. And I, I totally think that would not have felt earned if this triumvirate never fully gelled. Yeah, and an episode like Twilight wouldn't work as well as it does if you didn't care about that triumvirate. Well, okay, if you jump over to Discovery, it, it, it's a little bit of a different thing where like you have people that are... <laughs> Like Michelle Yeoh, she's essentially like in the main cast, but they always credit her as special guest star Michelle Yeoh. And you also have like in a different thing going on with Jason Isaacs. You know, it says, you know, starring, you know, uh, uh, SMG, Doug Jones, and, and then they give the and credit to Jason Isaacs or Asen, uh, Anson Mount or David Ajala, you know, uh, as the seasons go on. Uh, which is, you know, kind of part and parcel of what we get with a lot of the modern day television series, period, not just Star Trek, you know. And look, y you'll drop some people from some episodes and they won't be credited in the main cast, you know. But if they appear, uh, they will get a credit in the opening credits. Like we saw that in season two with Wilson Cruz, you know. Um, I, I think, I, I wonder if season two... I wonder if they just only gave him credit in episodes that he appeared in, because look, there's some episodes where, you know, characters would not appear in, but they'd still be in the main credits. I, I wonder if that was the case with him or Cam, do you recall if it said also starring Wilson Cruz or it just, was it him part of kind of the main credits without this kind of like qualifier there? No, to the best of my memory, he was just included in the main credits. And I'm trying to remember, on season one, Shazad Latif, was he credited right from, like, episode one onwards? Or did that start more... Well, he is obviously featured in the first handful of episodes. So he was, must have been there from day one, right? He was, but here's... Okay, <laughs> here's the funny thing. I remember just being blown away by the actor who was playing... Um, uh, <laughs> oh, what's his name, Cam? I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Of, Vogue. Uh, Vogue. Vogue, yeah. I was like, who is this actor? And he appears in the closing credits, and it's credited as like something like Iqbal so-and-so, and it turned out that that was actually Shazad Latif, because they wanted to keep Volk's identity kind of secret, and Shazad Latif, I think Iqbal is like his middle name, and the last name he used was like uh, one of his father's names or something like that. I could be getting it mixed up. So from my recollection, though, Shazad Latif was credited from season or from episode one onward and I, I think kind of the um there's some very bizarre press releases being issued at the time in which they 
said that, uh, stay with me, I could be getting my wires crossed a little bit here, but they said they had already announced Shazad Latif was going to be playing a Klingon, and then they issued another press release a couple of months later and said, no, 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 we like this character so much, we've created an entire, or we like this actor so much, we've created an entirely new character, and we've replaced um, his Klingon character with a different actor, and that's who they announced with, with Kenneth um, Mitchell as uh, uh, Cole. And it was just like this, it never really made sense to us until we kind of like put two and two together. The Reddit detectives figured out that it was really going to be Voke was AKA Tyler. If I, I hope I didn't lose everybody with that kind of babbling there, but can, <laughs> do you kind of follow what I'm saying about like these weird press releases that were being issued uh, before the premiere of Discovery? Yeah, no, that sounds about right to me. And uh, it's very confusing and I think represents the behind the scenes on Discovery quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, the, the the other interesting thing, though, is like, um, you know, back in the 90s, it was kind of difficult to do different opening credits, you know, season to season, episode to episode. Now it's just like software. You just plug in somebody's name or take somebody's name out and you, you can like, I don't know, it costs, I don't know, your VFX company will, will charge you maybe, I don't know, 100 bucks or something like that. Whereas I, I think back to the... Um, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer pilot episode, and they wanted uh, the character Jesse, you know, uh, Xander's best friend, they wanted him in the main credits, and they were going to kill him off in that uh, first episode, and just to kind of shock the audience, be like, hey, anyone could go at any time. And then the producer's like, no, it's going to be too expensive to create two entirely different opening credit sequences. So that's just kind of one thing to uh, to think about how much times have changed uh, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. When we're talking about the ensemble of Star Trek Discovery, is it even possible? Like, you think of, you know, Sonequa Martin-Green, Mary Wiseman, Doug Jones. Mm, I feel like that's about it in terms of, like, an ongoing ensemble cast. Uh, what we have... Uh, oh, why am I blanking on... Uh, oh, Anthony uh, Rapp. Anthony Rapp, Rapp, of course. Rapp. Yeah, so we have, like, yeah. four consistent people. Although, Mary Wiseman is gone officially, yeah. not officially. I don't know what to make of it. It's just, you can tell it, the, the, her character... Um, there really wasn't like any real sort of um end to the character. What what was the word? I'm like? A closure to the character based on where we left her off uh, midway through season three. So you can kind of tell, even though she's not in the main credits anymore, she'll be coming back and we'll get some sort of closure with her somehow. So that's kind of a, a weird, quirky thing. But like from, you know, uh, I. I I guess the only two people that uh, that were in episode one and that are still in the show are Sonequa Martin-Green and, and Doug Jones. Like, Anthony Rapp didn't come on until episode three, and he's still around in the yeah. series. So th this, is very, this is very unusual. Like, we've never seen this before in Star Trek. Yeah, and I think on one hand, it's actually really interesting because a lot of those shows you just kind of at a certain point just go yeah yeah okay it's gonna be the same cast every week so there's something interesting about a show that's willing to shake it up i wish i could say that that shake up felt like it's been earned because at this point i'm just like i i, I don't know who i have a connection to anymore on this show and that's kind of a problem and you've just had like weird incidents where i think of like you know the actress who played non showed up in like the opening <laughs> credits for like one episode or something like that there's so many <laughs> weird choices like that she got five episodes she got five full episodes which was just bizarre oh, five? yeah uh oh, she good was for credited her. she was credited for the first five episodes of, of season 3 and they awkwardly wrote her off into a seed vault camp yeah 
So, and, you know, Blue Del Barrio has a credit in this season, but it just feels like a show that's constantly juggling itself around. And I wish I could say, like, see? Boy, did they earn that. And I'm like, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Well, okay, so, Cam, out of the people that it... Okay, you've got the the people featured in the main credits on Discovery. The people that are recurring, not in the main credits, who is the most promising or, like, well-developed character like fleshed out character oh my god i mean i think they did a lot with um with Giorgio, mirror Giorgio. O- outside of the um, outside of the opening credits though oh outside of the opening credits yeah well like the problem is like what do you do with a character like well wilson cruz who like popped in and out of the main credits oh he is in the main credits uh from season three onwards now uh, in every episode so out of the people that weren't in the main credits and aren't in the main credits, you know, kind of the recurring characters, like, who is the most fleshed out character? I'm, like, trying to wrap my head around who's actually um, a character that does anything on the show that's not in the main credits or hasn't I, like my Okay, okay, uh, my, my argument, I would I would say probably Laurel would be kind of the closest one who oh, yeah. never made the that's leap from, you know, kind of recurring cast member to... Uh, main credits you know I, I think you could make an argument that she could have been you know featured in the main cast in season one that's a really good call and i do think like gray is going to compete with her um will, will we obviously he? had issues with <laughs> no I, i'm serious like based on the last episode yeah well it, i'm not saying the storytelling is strong for what they're doing with gray but it feels like in terms of development that this character of someone who's not so far been in the credits probably will at some point beat Laurel. Based on where we left the character off. Yes. Do, yeah. do you recall how we left the character off though? Uh, going back to be with the troll people, right? Yeah. So the character's off the ship. So I just like, I don't see a room for gray as we know him at this point to leap into the main credits moving forward. You know, that's just, and like, I know, I totally know what you're saying. You know, like, I just, I don't know how Trill Guardian is going to be appearing week to week <laughs> on Discovery moving forward. That's all. I just feel like Gray's coming back. Oh, no, like, no, I, I, and, and I agree, Gray's but, gonna be going but for, Gray, yeah. Gray will be coming back as a guest star, not somebody in the main credits. Yeah. And I don't think he has a chance of being in the main credits. I mean, this is sort of the issue, though, when you have an entire show built around the Michael Burnham characters that... An ensemble is kind of out the window. You can have your regular players that fans can really enjoy, but like ultimately, it all kind of circles around Michael Burnham. I I would have made the argument that Admiral Vance could have made the leap, you know, from season three to season Mm. four, but he's only been in just like uh, just a couple episodes, and it's essentially uh, Canadian actor director Mike uh, David Cronenberg that is kind of taking his place because I, I just wonder what the quarantine issues are for an actor uh like um the the vance actor versus a show it's filmed in toronto you, you can have like david cronenberg like on call every moment and, and i don't see david cronenberg joining the main cast of star trek discovery going into season five that would be amazing if he did though <laughs> sure that's his new his new calling <laughs> I mean, I might be able to get on board with that. Kim, we still don't know what his job is. We we have no idea what no, um, Dr. Kovic's job is. It, it, it's weird. 
he is the living embodiment of that magical tool they used at the end of uh, season one Picard. Speaking of which, um, it's kind of weird that it took us like four or five episodes to meet all the uh, main cast uh, for this series, isn't it? It is, yeah, but they feel fairly solid as a cast, unlike Discovery. Well, as if like, yeah, these are the people that you're going to be moving forward with. Um, yeah, and, and look, I, I want to bring up Seven of Nine. Is she going to be a main character next season? I would say yes. Yeah, and I would say that marks the first time since uh, somebody made that leap since uh, Worf did as well. And I, I'm not going to count um, Hologram Janeway in Star Trek Prodigy because that's an entirely different character. It's portrayed by the same actress, but it is not the same character. No, that's an actual good point. And I, I think, too, with like Picard... Um they recognize the value of what seven can do for their show. Yeah. And I don't know if that was necessarily the intention when they thought, let's bring this character back for an episode or two, you know, earlier in the season of Picard, but going into season two, I think they recognize how important that character is to the ongoing uh, fan buzz for their show. Was it a mistake? You know, the way that they approached Narek versus Narissa as <laughs> people either featured as recurring guest stars or versus main cast members. It, like, did, they might have appeared in, like, he may have only appeared in, like, two more episodes than she did or something. Yeah, and you look at what her exit was, like a, you know, fight with Seven of Nine getting kicked down a shaft. Um, you could have easily combined those two characters into one. Like, it, it, there's no function that she accomplishes that he couldn't have done or the two of them as a single character couldn't have done. Cam, he was a main cast member, and he did not even get a farewell. Yeah. Like he, he and he's not coming back as a main cast member in season 2. No. Spoiler alert. And there is no closure to this character by the time we got to the finale. Like that character is that character the biggest bust in Star Trek main cast members? Um I mean it guess it depends on how you view Pulaski, but um She was not she was not in the main cast. Oh, though. that's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um of the main cast, do you think yeah. it, could it be like maybe Travis Mayweather? Is that an argument that could be made? I would argue Mayweather is frustrating because of how little they give him, but he does serve a function on the show. Yep. Yep. Whereas with like um, Narek, he didn't even serve a function by the end. <laughs> what is her plan, Cam? What <laughs> is her plan? Guess what? Didn't have a plan. Um, yeah. Vosh never, or not Vosh, uh, not Deej. What's, uh, what's Deej's sister's name, Cam? Suji? What was Soji, <laughs> Soji. Soji, Soji. Soji never had a plan by the end. And uh, just, it's, it's so clear that they're just kind of making it up as they went along, even though they thought that they were being smart. Because I, I think what were, they had in mind was kind of like a master plan. And then they realized this master plan uh, wasn't, working and they had to kind of rewrite on the fly and it just i don't know man I like this <laughs> i i i think I, i'm hearing enough things from like the new showrunner i like enough of the actors in the main cast that i'm hopeful that they can develop a better character-based series like i i don't think the story for picard worked in season one but it's not as if I, I hate, hate, hate this cast. I think there's potential, even though somebody like Elnor was just like a, a total dud. Yeah. And, um, you know, a second ago, I think I combined Sutra and Soji into a single name. But jumping off of that, I actually think it could be interesting to revisit 
like what you know the actors can do with hopefully both of those characters i think that could be really interesting because i think there's promise for seeing because i don't know that i would have watched her performance as soji and been like there's a lot of versatility going on here but when i saw what she could do with other characters i go oh i would actually like to see that versatile uh, versatility in future seasons well I, I don't understand like i like Deej for like the one episode she was in and then Is like dodge Deej or dodge 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 i don't know <laughs> yeah you can tell how much she's really stuck in my brain like i like dodge yeah. for that one episode she was in i i generally thought the actress like was good i just i i don't think it's the actress's problem i think it was the material that she was given and it was just kind of like, and it's just, it's not good material if you have yet another, I, I, I'll, I'll use a phrase, but it, it's essentially somebody's like a damsel in distress much of the time, and they don't really know what to do with this character. They keep implying that she has a plan. She doesn't. And she's found herself in this uh, toxic relationship. And she seems oblivious to that until her boyfriend tries to gas her to death. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, just like, I, and for a lot of the time, it's just like, I don't know, is it the actress? But then you get to, you think of Dodge and you think of Sutra. I'm just like, no, it's not the actress. It's, it's, it's the terrible writing. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful in season two, they can, knowing her strengths now, they can play off of those. And I hope that goes for a lot of the cast, because I think there's a lot. I think Michelle Hurd was really strong in season one. Give her more. Allison Pill was really frustrating. Let's figure that out, people, and get that back on track for season two. So I think, like, the cast is, in terms of acting ability, pretty strong. Pretty strong, you know, I think, and stand up alongside a lot of the casts of the past. It's just about what they actually give them to do. Yeah. All right, let's jump over to the animated series. We have Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, you know, is this like the first real two-hander since the original series with Mariner and, and Boimler? I, I would say that they are definitively the stars of the show. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's those two as your main two-hander, and then the secondary two-hander with um, Rutherford and Tendi, and then sort of the, you know, the bridge crew as your sort of supporting cast around them. Is Freeman kind of the number five then, after those four? Um I would say so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's interesting. I I like the dynamic between like kind of the, the different uh, pairs. We talked about that on Deep Space Nine. And we actually found a lot of fun when they're pairing up characters we didn't necessarily expect, you know, last season. Yeah, no, I think like that's a lot of the fun of this season because uh, this last season of Lower Decks was because in season one, we kind of began to complain to a certain point of like, boy, they always pair up the same two. Uh, they're the same twosomes and like it gets kind of repetitive whereas I appreciated it in season two they actually found ways to mix it up and it never failed like DS9 it was uh, I think a lot of fun all season long uh, the one thing that kind of threw me for a loop is when the actor playing Shax uh, his name was still in the season two opening credits I was just like oh they must like that actor they'll find another character for him to voice and then nope they just kind of they brought back Shax and that's that, Cam. There's no real explanation. Nope. Sorry, Kayshawn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know how much more I, I we can dive into kind of how this signifies kind of a development in uh, main cast. But if we go over Prodigy, I, I think it's clear at this point that Dahl is the main character. Uh, Gwyn is very close behind. And look, we talked about before, like we have Kate Mulgrew returning as Janeway, but hologram Janeway. I think this is yet another, is this kind of the 
closest thing that we've had since kind of the wharf situation back in Deep Space Nine, even though it's truly is like two different characters. Uh, well, I mean, I guess we had seven on Picard. But she so. wasn't in the main cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, that is the closest, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm wondering, like, like we also have, like, characters from other series, like Chakotay uh, is now on the show as well in uh, kind of a, a way you wouldn't necessarily expect. And it's going to be interesting, like, how many other people they kind of bring into its orbits. Um, we'll be diving into Prodigy much more next week. Uh, all I can say is I... I think the cast works for me. It feels fully flesh in a way that we don't usually get out of the gate with uh, the first couple seasons of Star Trek. So I don't know. I think they kind of, uh, if they can keep on this path, and Dahl is a character who's kind of annoying me in the uh, first couple episodes of season one, and he's really kind of, uh, I've come around on him, or maybe he his own character growth in the last few episodes is more aligned with the stuff that I'm interested in. I wonder if with animated shows, you have to do so much pre-planning because animation takes so long that you have to hammer out these dynamics. Because when we talk about Lower Decks or Prodigy and go right back to the original animated series, which actually balanced the cast better than the original series did, um, it's like you don't seem to have the problems we talk about with the other ones where there's all these growing pains. Yeah. I am very curious about how they handle things with strange new worlds and like we've talked about before you you and i we're, we're not like we don't want to judge people too harshly but with strange new worlds you're gonna have like three white people as your three leads which i'm not i'm not attacking white people i'm a white person but it just doesn't look good for star trek being such a progressive series where it's not as diverse in representation as we've had previously, especially when we're coming off, you know, like um, Lower Decks or uh, Discovery, you know, where they have such... The characters represent kind of the world that we live in rather than this kind of fake world, which it's kind of like we are kind of throwing back to the 1960s when The Cage first premiered. But if you look at the rest of the cast, though, it is going to be a very diverse cast. I just wonder how much prominence the other cast members are going to be getting? I would think quite a bit. My guess is that they build your core story around, um, or I shouldn't say story, but just like the power structure of the show is obviously with your, you know, three bridge crew senior members. But it would not shock me if it's like once they're established, it's a little bit of like a TNG vibe where it's like, yes, Pike is the captain, but we are spending maybe a lot of time with Ahura. I don't think you bring Ahura onto this show unless you're planning to do a lot with her. Or as well, the Doctor, who's a recurring character from uh, TOS, Nurse Chapel. I just think that the show is going to establish that you know main crew that we saw on Discovery and were really strong. But I, I think they may have the confidence to just be like, okay, we're going to spend a lot of time with Ahura over the next episode or two. I, I don't think it's going to be a triumvirate, and then the supporting players. The only thing I'll, I'll say, though, they're only doing 10 episodes for that first season. I just... I, it'll be interesting to see if every single main cast member gets an episode dedicated to them. Has I Could you imagine, like, Pike only getting one episode dedicated to him, or Spock only getting one episode dedicated to him? I think... A lot of these episodes might be more in the ensemble format, whereas I think the series would benefit a lot more if... You know, you, you could have a single episode dedicated to every single character, but I just, I think Pike, Spock, and number one are going to be more prominent 
than the rest of the cast any given episode. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they shake out A and B stories if they do those, if they're looking to go with that more um, classic style of Star Trek where maybe they can alternate, you know, maybe sending the number one in Spock story to the B story. You've got Pike, there's your captain, you know, just kind of overseeing things, but you can have an Uhura A story, for example, or they can kind of shift it up that way and keep everyone kind of covered in terms of an ensemble on a show without entirely focusing the spotlight on your main three triumvirate all the time. I, I think that totally makes sense. And that's one of the things that I'm enjoying right now with Prodigy. And like you, you have kind of a focus on certain characters for the A story and then other characters for the B story. And I think we saw that a lot in TNG and it worked uh, to its advantage there. And I, I, I hope the next show picks it up. Uh, speaking of other shows, Cam, we, there was news this past week in which uh, Shazad Latif uh, was asked for an update on uh, Section 31. And he was just like, yeah, no update. They're talking about doing some sort of spin-off series. It seems like Michelle Yeoh is pretty busy. And yeah, they, they uh, had me stay behind in the 23rd century as the commander of Section 31. Really nothing to share here. And guess what? I, I believe every bit of it. The writers developing that Section 31 script, um, they've left Star Trek. I believe they're doing, I think it's Sweet Tooth or... Yeah. Yeah, I'm messing up the name, but it's some Netflix uh, series. And it's uh, the show seems like i don't want to say dead but like um permanently stalled if that is uh, a way to describe it i just think the further away we get from it too that some other character is going to pop up they want to do a spin-off about or something there's going to be another star trek pitch that's going to excite them they're going to want to make i don't think we're gonna it, it's like <laughs> here's a weird parallel do you remember back in the day when McFarland Toys was developing Discovery figures? And like in the first wave, there was going to be a Takuvma action figure. Yes. And then it took a while. And then there was delays. And then at a certain point, they're like, why are we putting out a Takuvma action figure like two years after this show's been on the air? Let's just scrap the whole thing. I feel like that's kind of the case with Section 31. It made a lot of sense to them. Um, you know, as you're going through season two Discovery and maybe season three, then Giorgio leaves and you're like, okay, we'll get to that at some point. And then, you know, as things continue to progress, do you really care as much anymore? Probably not. Think about how much momentum there was for a Captain Pike spinoff and how there is absolutely zero momentum among the fans for any sort of Section 31 series. And not to say that we don't like Michelle Yeoh. I think she was the best part at times for Discovery for those first three seasons. I just, I don't think anybody wants to watch this week to week, though. No, I mean, it's the sort of show that, like, people like you or I will tune in because we cover it on a podcast, but, like, I just don't think there's that much excitement, and, you know, I, I'd like to see more Michelle Yeoh. I thought she was fun on the, on Discovery, but, yeah. like, uh, 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 she's busy. She's got better things. Like, Michelle Yeoh, we get, you know, she's got to win an Oscar. That's, like, something she's got to check off the box at some point or something. Like, get out there and do better work. Star Trek uh, Section 31 is not going to give you, you know, the acclaim you just so richly deserve. Uh, very quickly, uh, there's been lots of uh, rumbling about with regards to a Starfleet Academy series. It would seem that Mary Wiseman's um, rather bizarre departure from Discovery might indicate that's where Tilly is going, you know, maybe as kind of an instructor. I I don't know. Like, based on the episode that featured all those cadets on Discovery this past season, I'm like, doesn't really seem like a show that I'm going to be interested in watching week to week, and, and maybe they can get a, an amazing cast to headline it, but based on those uh, cadets that we saw, uh, I think it was in... I, I forget the name of the episode, but uh, just with regards to the uh, the Navarre 
politics. I just, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not really pumped for the possibility of this one. Not under the current regime, no. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic about Strange New Worlds, but that has so much to do with the cast and how much I loved them in Season 2 Discovery, whereas like this... I mean, I'm just getting a little nervous about a lot of these um, live-action Trek coming out of the Kurtzman Factory at this point. It's like the anime, the animated stuff I'm really enjoying and I'm very optimistic about. But the live-action, it's very much a, you better prove it with something when it actually airs. This one, it's hard for me to get excited, but maybe I'll love it when it's on the air. Who knows? Yeah. Okay, Cam. Balls in your court. You have to pick the best ensemble cast in all of Star Trek. Oh, it's easy. DS9. Okay, I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Super easy. What's the worst? Um, worst ensemble cast. Uh, I don't like it's a show that I like, but I think it's Enterprise. And not that I don't like the characters, it's just like they focused so much on half the cast and then just ignored the other half of the cast. Whereas even though I have more problems with Discovery, it's it, I don't feel as if you know, half the cast is just being utterly ignored. It's like if somebody's in an episode, you know, whether it's Adira or Stamets, they're giving those characters lots to do. Yeah, I mean, Enterprise has a lot of the same problems as the original series, but the original series just being a show made in the 60s, you understand why there's the triumvirate. Whereas it feels like with Enterprise, they're actually rolling back the progress they've made in terms of giving all the cast members material when you're looking at DS9 or TNG. So, like, Enterprise is a tough one because I really like the show a lot. I hold it higher than many other Trek shows. But I think when you just look at in terms of utilizing an ensemble, it's not very strong. Yeah. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. We're going to talk about the book of Boba Fett. But before we do that, Tyler, what are we doing next week? Uh, you know what? It's time to catch up on Star Trek Prodigy. It's, uh, it'll be three episodes by the time you folks are going to be listening in to our Star Trek Prodigy catch-up. And Cam, all I can say is um, two episodes in so far uh, since the mid-season break. Uh, th this show is, like, I'm enjoying it so much more than I am with Discovery. I, I just find it so less frustrating to watch week to week. Uh, they're having fun with this, and I can't wait to take a deeper dive with you uh, when we catch up next week. I'm excited to check back in with this show because I've enjoyed it. But, Tyler, the reason I haven't checked in with it is because I've been catching up on the book of Boba Fett. And what are we calling our book of Boba Fett report? It is called the Book Cam of Borton Fett right here. If that, uh, you know, th this is a, a takeoff of what we... <laughs> We originally started as the Ortonville Report when uh, I was doing reviews of the Orville back in Season 1. And then we followed up with the Mandalorian Report uh, when before you started watching Mandalorian Season 1 as well. And then we eventually renamed it to the Candalorton Report. So now we're following up with uh, the book cam of Borton Fett. And look forward to um, our reviews of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which uh, I think we'll be calling the Orton Wan Cam Nobi um, recaps uh, <laughs> in, in hopefully the months to come. So um, I'll kick it off, Cam. Um, I think kind of alluded to you uh, in private conversation, maybe on the podcast as well. Um, this series is not working for me. Um, yeah. what, are your, what are your thoughts, though? I think this show is interesting in a lot of ways where it's like, I don't understand the I don't understand what the show's about because if you watch, you know, to the end of Mandalorian season 2, 
It's like, okay, Boba Fett is taking control of Jabba's empire. At this point, three episodes down, I have no real um, <laughs> sense of there being an empire. It seems like it's mostly just Boba Fett sitting on a chair a lot and people coming in and talking to him. It, it seems like that's the primary goal of the character on the show. And I love, you know, your main actors. I think they're doing a great job. Tamara Morrison and Ming-Na Wen are fantastic as these two characters. It just feels like the story set in sort of the prime timeline of what's going on is just not focused. I don't know who the villains are. The last episode I watched, he's teaming up with like, it's like tough talking street kids. And I'm like, what? What is street this? Tufts. Street toughs. Like when I look back at Boba Fett, he was such an important character for a kid because he was just, you know, completely cloaked in mystery. He was a character I saw talk back to Darth Vader. He's the one that caught Han Solo. And as a child, you know, I had the action figure and I conjured up in my mind all of these stories as to who Boba Fett could be. None of us knew who he was under the mask. There was like a mystery to that that really did fuel a child's imagination. Now I'm watching an elderly gentleman get sassed by young people and I'm like, this is not the story I thought I'd be getting. But the reason I said up front that I thought it was kind of interesting was there's a lot of flashbacks in this. And I really kind of enjoyed the flashbacks, which have a real, like, Lawrence of Arabia or um, Man Called Horse vibe. And I've actually really enjoyed what they've done with the Tusken Raiders. So it's a weird show. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think you're more positive about it than I am. It's, um, this uh, Boba Fett, he, he is by no means an interesting character. He is yeah. a profoundly uninteresting character. The character is not clever in any way. He seems kind of dumb. And he seems like he's uh, very weak. It seems as if uh, Fennec is the clever one who can kick ass. And so when your main character is a dumb person who gets his butt handed to him every week, I'm just like, okay, well, why am I watching this? And you... Uh, talked about the the Tuscan Raider stuff and the flashbacks, which I don't know. I, I'm far more interested in what's going on in the present day than I am with this um, kind of semi-offensive take on indigenous people, kind of a la uh, Dances with Wolves. And that, Cam, are any of these Tuscan Raiders like fleshed out characters in any sort of way? Not really. Although I guess it's tough no, no when not, you're not not at all, not at yeah, all. It, it, I guess they it's... are archetypes and nothing more they are ciphers and nothing more and they're meant to represent indigenous people and i think it's yeah. offensive and i know a lot of people will be like oh tyler you're just trying to get on the woke train i'm not i'm saying take a look at it objectively and it's like these are not fleshed out characters at all and it's just and, and i'm just i'm watching it episode to episode i'm just like this is so boring these stories aren't interesting. It's kind of the simple storytelling. I didn't quite know what to make of it in Mandalorian season one. I I, I was a little, like I was on on for one episode, off for one episode about how I felt about it. But throughout three episodes so far, I'm just like this show's like it's not good. It, it just it, I, I I'm not enjoying it. Like I I think there's some interesting little elements, like seeing like a badass Wookie. Like that's kind of interesting, but. He eventually gets his butt kicked by the street toughs. I'm just like, I don't know. I, I don't know what their goal is. I hope it reveals itself to me by episode six, much how the emotional points that uh, hit you by the end of Mandalorian season one, those were well earned. And I, I did turn around on, on the series going forward after that, but I still think season one of Mandalorian is much bumpier than season two. So oh, yeah. I don't know. I did. 
Boba's not working for me. That's all I have to say. I do think there's a major problem with the lead character, as you said, where it's like, I don't connect the character I'm being shown on screen with the Boba Fett I saw in the movies at all. Like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. this is not representative of the character I've seen in the past. Um, I don't really understand who this is. So well, I, I don't know what to make of that. Didn't he seem like way cooler? He seems so much cooler in like season two of Mandalorian. And now he, he's just kind of a dud. Well, the problem is it's like these Star Wars shows want to flesh out things that were portrayed pretty matter-of-factly in the past. Um, you know, you've touched on, you know, the Tusken Raiders stuff. And you can even look at things like the Rancor monster from Return of the Jedi, which now we're being told have very complex emotional intelligence and all this stuff. And I'm like, uh, it's, it's kind of the Disneyfication of Star Wars, where yeah. it's like, things can't just be bad. Like, Boba Fett can't just be like a mercenary cold-blooded character he has to be this um complex individual i suppose i don't know they're not really exhibiting that on screen but in terms of the, what they want to do he has to be this complex character with this honor code and all this sort of stuff and it's like i guess but it doesn't make the character more interesting it makes him fill up more screen time but it doesn't make sense when i'm watching him sit on a throne get like you know <laughs> crap talked by other characters I, I mean, honestly, if you go watch those, you know, episodes two and three, like, he wasn't really a, a character. He, he was more of kind of a, uh, what, he had like a total of seven lines, and he had really cool looking armor, and he was an antagonist. And now that they're trying to flesh this out into a well-developed, nuanced character, he's just, he's just kind of boring. Yeah, well, that's the problem with, like modern storytelling when it comes to digging into old ips is like they take elements that were maybe cool and are like let's explain it let's explain it and it's like you know you've as you said the tuscan raiders in the past you look at them in the past star wars movies you don't really know much they're nomadic raiders um we don't have a lot of explanation but just by delving into them and one thing they did with the mandalorian it was they were looking like so often with star wars look at samurai stories so they said okay lone wolf and cub um, you know, with him and the, you know, Baby Yoda. And then, obviously, with here, they were looking at things like Man Called Horse, or as you said, Dances with Wolves, which invites issues that you didn't need. I find, like, choices like that, it's driven by this need to explain things, but also it invites problems that weren't necessarily there in the, you know, in the beginning. I think the problem is Disney would never have been willing to like green light a show based on like a true anti-hero like no. somebody who would be willing to uh, shoot greedo first for example like they need to disnify this character and whatever is cool about him before is just it, for the the very limited amount of screen time he had before uh it, it's just kind of been gutted at this point and i'm just like i i, I truly hope that by the time we get to episode six. I'm eating my words. I, I honestly wish that were the case. But, you know, I I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I think they're just trying to teddy bear him up. And I'm just left kind of like, and Caleb, I, I, I'm begging the people in Star Wars, take me off Tatooine. I never need to visit Tatooine ever again. It, it's a giant universe. And we spent more time on this wasteland boring planet than any other planet in this universe i'm just like i'm I'm ready to go elsewhere yeah i mean it's one of those iconic things that they're like we've got to keep showing it because that's what the fans want 
But uh, I do question if I were, you know, I'm trying to think of how old I was when I was like really diehard into Star Wars. Probably, boy, like six, seven, you know, up until my, you know, teens. If you'd have asked like 10 or 11 year old me if after watching these episodes, if I think Boba Fett is cool, I don't think my answer would be yes. No. I'd be so, like, nah, he's I, like an old man. I don't know. He seems kind of boring. Yeah. How old is he? Okay, like the actor's 60. Yeah. Um, if you go back to Attack of the Clones, like the character was like seven or eight when we were first introduced to him. And so how much time has passed since we first met him in Attack of the Clones? Has it been like 30 years? Is that about right? Well, okay. So there's like three years between the original films and then there's, I think, 18 years between episode three and A New Hope. So that's like, what, So 20, is he supposed to be about 40? Plus? Is he playing like a 40-year-old? Like Tamara Morrison? Is that it? Maybe. <laughs> and I, and I, I wanted to say, I've been referring to him as like an old man. And Tamara Morrison is someone I've seen in other movies. And he looks a lot better than he does on this show. This show, they make him look old. Well, I, I'm just saying, like, I, I think what it is is you, you have a 60-year-old playing mm. somebody who's supposed to be in, like, his late 30s, early 40s. And I'm just saying, like, he doesn't he doesn't move like somebody who's in his late 30s, early 40s. Do you think he's supposed to be 30s, 40s on the show? Because they play him as well, well, older, I think. No, no, but, but, but I, I'm just talking about the timeline, though. If yeah. we met him in Attack of the Clones at age 7 or 8... Yeah, and we flash forward, and I, I think between that period, it's been about thirty years. Maybe right? clones age faster. That very possible, but I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope they figure out where they're going because three episodes down, we don't really have an antagonist. We don't really have an understanding of this criminal empire, and uh, I think we're at the halfway point. <laughs> yeah. Well. So. Can't wait to watch the next episode. Uh, yeah. But, you know, honestly, okay, so by the time that our listeners listen to us, it'll be episode four of uh, this series. And so maybe our minds will have completely changed. That, that, that's all I can hope for. I, I'm investing in the show because I'm interested. I, I'm curious. I'm just, I, I haven't been blown away by any degree. No, no, it's very true. So I, I'm hoping it picks up. Uh, in terms of just like the visuals, I find the show watchable because I just think, I mean, they just do a really great job capturing oh, yeah. Star Wars visuals. I thought the internal sections of the Sarlacc pit was nightmare-inducing, and I thought they did a fantastic job with it. So you give me things like that, or, you know, 8D8, the robot, and I'm like, okay, I can keep watching this. Stick a lizard up my nose, Cam, because I'm done. <laughs> okay, so we're going to wrap up there. We'll uh, be tuning in to a Book of Boba Fett uh, moving forward and we'll share our thoughts. Hopefully it uh, gets a little better. Uh, maybe we're just too picky, Cam. I don't know. But in the meantime, if you're not too picky, uh, give us five stars rather than one stars. Uh, you know, just uh, on your podcatchers, whether it's Stitcher or it's uh, Apple Podcast. It's a free show. That's the only thing we ask is give us five stars. It's going to help more people find us. It's pretty easy to do. So uh, otherwise, yeah, uh, write those uh, big uh, Latinum checks for us uh, if you don't want to give us five stars. Okay. You can, of course, also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Voyager Ensemble Smith. 
And you can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N, as in Narek must return for Star Trek Picard in the main cast. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.